0: your host Effie Pilarinu and today I am building a bridge to a new world with Brett King. It's it's an honor to have him on uh, my my show. Brett, uh, welcome.
1: Hi Effie, great to be with you. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, I, I'm delighted uh, for many reasons. You kept me company during my Christmas holidays in reading uh, your your book and and your ideas, which I'm sure were brewing for quite a while before they became. They took shape in words and phrases and ink, uh, if if you like. So
1: you can tell, right?
0: I can tell. I can tell. Uh, how much um, that pregnancy uh, lasted. But it's a beautiful, uh, healthy child and, and one of those children that will definitely be uh, enlightened, enlightened, an enlightened child, if you like. That's, I think, the best uh, way to think of your book. And, and I hope, you know, in Greek, when, when a book is published, we say, um, happy sailing. Because oh, like that. yeah, because it kind of sails, it it goes through the seas. Uh, you don't know exactly where it is. and and um, yeah, it's it's got a, a very sort of a nice flavor to it. Um, I I find so for for the people that may not know who Brett is, he is a best selling author, this is not his first uh, uh, book, he's a futurist and many other things. Um, For the people that are in banking and financial services, uh, you know that Brett um, was the founder of Moven, one of the first uh, digital banks and the host of the famous breaking banks. Uh, so, But uh, today we are here to, to dive into his latest uh, baby, the book, um, whose title is The Rise of Technosocialism. And there's a very important uh, subtitle to it, it, which reads how inequality, AI, climate, thank you, will usher uh, in a new world. And I wonder, Brett, why many important things come in three, the three items.
1: Sure. I think that has a certain symmetry to it when you're trying to introduce a new subject that that people are not necessarily familiar with. But um, giving those those three elements of support to the idea is that it's not just... um, you know, you know, a a new sociological movement, it's a response to a systemic change. It's a response to um, these rolling crises or pressure on the system that have to make us rethink the philosophy of uh, human uh, society, particularly from an economics perspective. So if you're going to challenge something like that, um, rather than just saying, well, this is this is a reason for that. Having those three elements uh, that sort of build in into it has a nice resonance to it.
0: So so for you, Brett, how long has this uh, been been building up, these three sort of factors um, that come in from very different angles, seemingly, and converge. Um, to create a very complex global uh, problem. How long yeah. has it been?
1: I, I've been working on the this concept of this book for seven years now, but um, it, it started with, I, I published a book in 2015 called Augmented Life in the Smart Lane. And in that, I was talking about how individually we would adapt to all of these new technologies coming into play, you know, so artificial intelligence, uh, personal computing um, technology, gene therapy, robotics, you know, etc. But one of the things that occurred to me, um, you know, at the end of that book and as I was on the on the, uh, um, you know, the, the the book promotion trail for that is that we really needed a better way to think about how society would broadly adapt because some people would adapt well, others wouldn't, um, but you know, it would force uh, uh, changes behaviorally on society that we weren't necessarily prepared for. And then of course, um, you have um, the increasing inequality has become really apparent, particularly during the pandemic, but even before that, um, you know, uh, the gap between the rich and the poor, and of course, climate, you know, so um, where the epiphany was, was understanding that all of these things create increasing economic uncertainty for most people. If you're in the top 0.1%, then you're probably fine. But for the rest of us, um, you know, the fact is, it's getting harder to have uh, visibility on, you know, where our finances will be, and, uh, you know, what our working practices will be, and and all of those things that um, would normally lead you to a life that has some order to it and, and, and you're comfortable in knowing that you can provide for your family and uh, that your children are going to have a better life, you know, um, like what you would call the, Amer- the great American dream in, in, in years gone by. Um, and that, that sort of slipping away from us as these issues that provide greater and greater uncertainty about the future surface. So this was really an attempt to say, how do we get through this period of great uncertainty? particularly around economics, and what does society look like as we come out the other side of of these uh, changes? And ultimately ends up being a very philosophical conversation with, uh, you know, a fair bit of uh, policy and economic theory thrown in.
0: So, so obviously, when um, uh, people hear techno socialism, they probably will think it's uh, something to do with socialism as a political system. It has nothing to do with it. It might have some elements, of course, because of the a big problematic of inequality, but it's really a framework on how to think about the issues and potentially how to, to solve um, these issues. In, in your Correct. book, Brett, I mean, during our conversation, it would be nice to hear from you how you defined uh, technosocialism. But also, I want to bring up another concept that you have uh, given birth to, which is this uh, KIC economy uh, that I think is very important and it helps uh, us understand where we are heading to and maybe with greater awareness um, go in that direction. So,
1: Sure, let me dive into that at, at a high level. Um, so the the KIC knowledge, innovation, and creativity economies um, was the way we defined the the, the need to re re gear economies away from the way we think about supply and demand in classical economic terms. So, um, you know, in, in supply and demand 101, which, you know, you, we all learn for, for basic economics, it's Adam Smith, you know, from 1776, is that, you know, if you have a product that is in the market and, and um, uh, has high demand, then to increase the supply, you need to put more people producing that product. So that you can meet the demand and this, um, so we look for a a point we call equilibrium, where the amount of supply equals the demand in the market and we do that through labour participation. But in highly automated societies where we, you know, have automated production means no longer does increasing demand result in increasing labor participation. I.e., you know, it creates more processing cycles for artificial intelligence, not more jobs for humans. This is the core um, breakdown, if you like, of traditional, the traditional supply and demand economics in the 21st century. So instead, you're investing in KIC. You're investing in the knowledge to automate. You're investing in innovations that give you a competitive edge. You're you're investing in creativity where humans can differentiate from machines. Um, So you're changing the nature of your reliance on technology on one hand and people on another hand in respect to the operation of the economy. The biggest challenge, of course, is that in highly automated societies the the intent of AI is to eliminate humans from the workforce so we spend a lot of time in the book talking about how we might adapt to the changing role of work where um, you're no longer able to get enough work to put food on the table and you know cover the costs of your housing because robots have taken a huge amount of, you know, or algorithms have taken a huge amount of, um, you know, the basic process oriented uh, skills in in the economy. So that brings us back to sort of that core question of, you know what uh, is the role of humans in the economy in highly automated societies, and um, you know what is the role of work moving moving into the future. So that's probably one of the stickiest uh, philosophical um, pieces that we try to tackle in the book, for sure.
0: Yes, and 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 I think it also relates to to one of the other items that you highlight, which is about the need for long term planning. Versus short-term planning, which is connected to all this idea and our obsession uh, as a society and, uh, and uh, economic sort of system around productivity. We have to redefine productivity, measure it in different ways, and so. On. You know, Brett. Uh, last week, in my first uh, interview for the year, I spoke with the uh, Karen Vent, who is who is. Uh, a, 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 ex-investment banker, and and now I would call her a sustainability expert. She is the editor of um, Springer Nature uh, uh, series on sustainable finance. And one of the ideas that she suggested is that we are missing a sustainable development goal, an SDG number 18. And she suggested that we need digitalization as an SDG, the 18th SDG, um, because it is missing today, you know, the, these yes. SDG frameworks were thought and put out more than 10 years ago for 2030, we're closer to 2030, 2050. How do you feel about that? Do you think that that is something that should be there in the framework of how uh, we, we, we move forward
1: um, absolutely. I mean, we have to factor in technology regardless, right? Because it's it's going to be such a big part of society. But where it's really critical for us is we talk a lot about automation of government to improve resource allocation. So there's a lot of wastage and a lot of, um, you know, um, bureaucracy that adds to the cost of running government, which is, is inefficient. So when we talk about techno-collectivism or techno-socialism as we we call it in the book one of the the things that you know you often hear as criticism about socialism is who's going to pay for it Who's going to pay for all of these government services to the poor and, you know, um, uh, you know to, to immigrants and so forth. Um, but what we argue in the book is if you use technology well, then you can dramatically reduce the cost of those services over time so that they're lower than the cost of the existing system. So if you can provide better basic services to the citizens, but you can do so at a much lower cost than the existing system, why wouldn't you do that? Right? So that is capitalism working at its best to make uh, to lower costs and make things more, uh, as you say, you know, um, improving productivity. So one example we give, for example, you know, is, is the US healthcare care system which today is, from a um, perspective of efficiency, is very poor, because uh, the US healthcare system, um, you know, is twice the total healthcare system costs of the OECD average. And uh, you often get lower health outcomes in the United States compared with um, other OECD countries. Um, But we show how you could reduce that by 70%, the total cost of healthcare using a range of technologies. Um, So you'd be Able to provide universal health care to every American at a fraction of the cost of the existing system. So you lower the total system costs and everyone is better off. And that's because of the application of technology. And I think similar things can happen in a number of areas, particularly, you know, we can use technology to improve access to food and solve the problem of food scarcity. Um, There are a number of areas where I think in terms of sustainability, um, technology absolutely needs to be part of our planning and part of the sort of core infrastructure that we build that enables. 21st century economies to work.
0: With. Yeah, I mean, re- reading your book, uh, it, it was clear the, uh, the, the importance you give to uh, getting uh, automation at the government level, but also emphasizing the importance of policies that facilitate automation in different sectors like health, like agriculture, and, and other. Uh, sector so that combination of government services and and policies that um, f- facilitate that. You know, saying that, tell us a little bit about China since you you often talk about what is happening there and how we can look towards the Chinese. Um, policies and ways of doing things without having to copy paste, but understand um, their long-term planning and thinking and pick up elements from that. So tell us in your book, you you talk about um, the pyramid-shaped economy becoming a diamond-shaped economy. What is that all about?
1: So, um, you know, we refer to uh, Will and Ariel Durant, Um, they wrote a book in the 60s called Lessons from History, but essentially the Durants were able to look historically at all of the various socio-political and economic models in the past and come up with basically two models of organizing principles for, um, you know, society. And one was a pyramid-shaped economy, which where the wealth is designed, the entire economy is designed for wealth to flow uphill. So a monarchy is a very good example of this or the feudal systems of the uh, the, the Middle Ages, you know, so um, what you know, as wealth is accumulated at a societal level, it goes up to the, the lords and the landlords and the, uh, the, the, the wealthy elite at the top of the pyramid. But the most successful economies we've seen in history, and um, particularly the post Second World War US economy was a diamond shaped. So um, this is where a uh, You have a even bell curve of distribution of wealth. You have a growing middle class. This stimulates uh, consumption. It stimulates uh, innovation in the market. And so, you know, if if we look at uh, the post-Second World War war US economy, you know, these are the characteristics that make it such a successful economy, accounting for 40% of total global output in the mid-60s. But in the 80s, um, the U.S. started to flatten out again to become more of a pyramid shape um, through the attack on trade unions and collective bargaining, the deregulation of financial services market by Clinton in later years. All of this uh, has worked towards, um, again, turning the U.S. into a uh, a pyramid shape from the diamond, whereas China... We see more recently the opposite. Yeah, you know, focus on common prosperity. Uh, recently, in terms of the work that's being being done there, elimination of um, all the all the uh, you know Chinese living in extreme. Um, poverty over the last 20 years, uh, growing middle class by the end of this decade, 25% of the world's middle class will be based in China. And so, you know, that's why China is going to surpass the US as the world's number one economy, sometime in this decade, because of that diamond shaped, um, you know, mechanism that is, is really supercharging uh, their economic growth at a grassroots, grassroots level. So, um, China is is a good template for future economies for a number of reasons. One is the common prosperity or the sustainable prosperity doctrine that we see um, emerging. Um, More focus on making sure everyone is included in the economy, but also in ensuring that the economy makes a transition to this KIC state as orderly as possible. So, increasing the number of STEM jobs, making sure that Everyone is educated around artificial intelligence, Um, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative and supply chain automation and central bank digital currency that will underpin that. You know, China has all the building blocks uh, coming into place for making this transition to a KIC based economy that, um, you know, other Western economies don't necessarily
0: have. Very interesting and and maybe in the future it will become less important, the political system uh, will become less important per se if we're digitizing um, um, the government processes and and we depend less on on the elected or non-elected officials because the processes um, uh, are there. Brett, before we close, I want to hear from you in in what has is going on now and what you foresee in a good scenario the scenario of techno socialism um, taking uh, over uh, how are our human values or or our understanding of our rights changing in this world? Well uh, this is uh,
1: I think where with the impact of artificial intelligence and with the impact of climate change, and we can see it to some extent, you know, a glimpse of this with the pandemic, is that when you focus on individual rights, um, you know, at the, um, you know, the impact of the broader collective social rights, um, it tends to reduce overall the benefits to the entire um, society. So, um, you know, where you've had economies that you know, focus on individual rights around you know, mask mandates and, and vaccinations, for example, the number of deaths are higher compared with those uh, economies that tend to be more compliant in terms of measures that are uh, committed to the broad social good. And the same is happening in terms of economics is that when you focus more on individual wealth and the accumulation of individual wealth, versus the prosperity of society, you tend to get the stratification, the, the rich Rich versus the poor, but the, the, the epiphany is that if you look at climate in particular, and to some extent you could say the same for AI, but climate is going to be something that affects us all um, across the planet, and we can't have an individualistic approach to this you can't even have a, a national approach, we need a collective response as a human species you know, there's no such thing as a national climate change policy. If you are super sustainable as an economy, and you follow all the rules, but the next big industrial economy next door to you follows none of the rules, then your climate change response is going to be ineffective. So we need to have a more collective view of uh, humanity when it comes to these big systemic challenges. And that's really the core philosophy here is that, um, you know, it is, Using technology to benefit everybody is obviously the the doctrine we're uh, preaching in in the book, but it's it's this view of the fact that if we work together as a species, we're unstoppable. You know, think about what humanity has been able to achieve when we come together in large numbers. So, um, you know, the human genome project, the Apollo project. You know, uh, there, there are lots of illustrations when hum- humans work together. Um, yeah you know, we can achieve some incredible things um and so that you know, is really the type of mentality we need for getting through this period of disruption around climate, particularly with, say, a billion eco-refugees and 600 cities affected by sea level rise. This is not something that you can just leave to individual governments and cities to handle. You need a global collective response. So thinking more as a human species collectively about what future we want for Um, the species as a whole and our grandchildren and the planet I think is definitely a key part of uh, the way we think about the future in the book.
0: Brett uh, thank you so much Uh, and I just want to tie in the fact that this is 2022 which has the power in triple of the number two which is all about coming together and that is really what um uh, your messages i i will share with our audience uh, your the, the link to your webpage for your book it's a wonderful book that needs to be read by a wide audience this is not a tech uh, book there is no need to understand any type uh, of technology or any type of you know microeconomics it is a book that is very much uh, Philosophical and, and looking at uh, human problems that we can all uh, understand. Thank you, Brett, so much.
1: Thank you, Faristo.